G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Series 9 of This Week in Startups Australia. Throughout Series 9, we're focusing on one question. What is it that makes a startup successful? Is it a great idea, a great team, great customers, or something else altogether? This is an important question for all startups, a fundamental question. And on this series, we're looking for answers. We're talking to people who have been successful and asking them how it happened. We're talking to startups on the road to success and ask them how they plan to get there. And in this, our second news special of Series 9, we'll take a look at the new federal budget and ask if the government is doing enough to help startups be successful, or if it should be doing anything at all. All the news that startups need on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by User Testing. Experience what your customer experiences with User Testing. Request your free trial at usertesting.com slash twista and get the fast human insights you need to make more informed business decisions at scale. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by Squarespace. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. Go to squarespace.com slash twista for a free trial. Twista is also sponsored by Odoo, a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that let you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Go to odoo.com slash Twista to check it out. Twista's production partner for Series 9 is UTS Startups, where they're equipping a new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own venture and build the foundation for a successful career. To learn more about UTS Startups, go to startups.uts.edu.au. Even though it's only been a few weeks, a lot has happened since our last Twista news special. The vaccine rollout is going slower than expected, the pandemic is accelerating globally, and the Australian economy, paradoxically, is clearly roaring along, which leads us to the latest federal budget and what it might mean. Joining us as we explore these and other news topics relevant to startups are two well-known and highly regarded VCs who have shared their wisdom in earlier news specials. Andrea Gardner is co-founder and CEO of Gillix Ventures. Welcome back, Andrea. Delighted to be here, Mark. And joining Andrea is one of the partners at Carthona Capital, Dean Durrell. Welcome back, Dean. Hi, Mark. All right. Without further ado, let's jump straight into the federal budget. So... What does everyone think about it? I mean, the government was splashing a lot of cash around. There was some talk about a digital strategy and where that was going to be. Where does this leave startups? Are startups any better at the end of this than we were before? You know, I'm always going to uh, say something funny here. Um, in my view, government either needs to get out of the way or really help. Here, they're stuck between two stalls. 
Um, I think the government are rubbish in this area. They've completely failed us. You know, when we when we look at our international position, you know, we're we're at the bottom of the league in many of things. You know, innovation index, um, our digital readiness. We we're really at the bottom, and it's because, like so many things, this government does, it, it's about spin and politics rather than actually doing what's right for the country over the long term. So, you know, I think, um, sure, they, they splash a bit of cash here and there. It's all headline numbers. But in the end, you know, it, the, the, the country will go forwards in terms of innovation and, and in the digital sense, more to do what, what the individual players are doing rather than the government. Andrea? I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so jobs... And job creation is one of the big, big driver, drive, you know, pretend, you know, purported drivers of this government. Yeah, we've got to get behind coal or whatever and digging stuff out of the ground because it creates jobs. I mean, I think it's complete rubbish. If they look at the real stats, um, I think 144 million jobs were created in the six years from 2011 by startups less than three years old. The AIC report suggested it was, um, I can't remember, it was 90% of all new jobs created in the previous couple of years had been by startups less than two years old. So innovate, the innovation sector and tech startups is a major driver of economic growth and job creation. And the government just uh, has, and I see this as, I, I mean, I disagree with um, Dean t- to the extent that I think at least it's something, but I think it falls far short of the comprehensive um, focus on startups that we need to see. We were in Adelaide last, was it last week, Dean, I think? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Um, and it was great. One of the startups that we'd invested in here had been lured to South Australia by a, a premier and government that is throwing support at tech startups to get them there. And we went from one tiny, very early stage startup across the road in an, to another warehouse to fleet one from a louder flying cars to fleet the nano satellites. 70 jobs they've created just in the last couple of years. I mean, that's just two tiny little startups. So it can be really powerful to create jobs. And I think what we need is a really comprehensive policy and f- you know economic support for startups a- across the board, not just focused on certain verticals, which this this digital economic plan appears to be. And I think there needs to be a lot of focus on um, supporting the commercialisation of startups. I think we, we create great tech, then we sell it for next to China. We need to keep it here, commercialise it here and, um, you know, benefit, leverage the economic benefit for Australia. So the government, of course, is famously against picking winners and yet it seemed to have thrown money at the games sector, which, as far as I know, wasn't actually asking for money. Do we have any idea what was behind that? That there's, you know, a lot of money that's basically being thrown in grants and... I think Scott Morrison's a mad gamer. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, I think think there's massive support in other countries for gaming and it is easy to, you know, there's talent all over the world Actually, uh, Melbourne is, you know, a world-class hotspot for, for, for gaming uh, developers and companies. So I think it is about time. Um, but, you know, just going to another topic, like National Artificial Intelligence Centre. What, what does that mean? Well, does anyone know what that actually is? 
What, what, what do you have in a national center? Yeah, and I think there's actually supposed to be seven or eight of them. So it's going to be spread around the states. Of course, each state will get its own center. Some focus on that is, I think, meant to be AI in manufacturing. But beyond that, I haven't heard anything about what that means. No. And I think the um, with the the support they're um, throwing at video <laughs> video games development, the the report was saying they're going to determine what that actually means, what it covers in mid-21. And there's talk that it could include things as various as defence, innovation, med tech, um, construction and manufacturing, innovation, energy. I hope it does include clean energy and renewable energy. But, I mean, what, what the, it just seems all very nebulous and lacking in focus to me. So something that was put into the budget close to the last minute, really, rather than something that had been fully developed as a policy over the next last year and then put into the budget. Because you would have a definition, for instance, of what a game is. Because you're absolutely right. Like, they're leaving that now. There are then what they call the digital strategy elements. And the one that struck me was that they're going to spend $276 million to increase the use of electronic billing by Australian small and medium-sized businesses. What does – I mean, does that mean everyone's going to get a Stripe account? I, I'm, I'm just a little vague on what that actually means in this case. You're looking at blank faces here. Mark. Yeah, I'm at a loss. I was looking at you, hopefully, Dean. I have yeah, no look, idea what that I really have means. Looked at, I have looked at this part of the world before, and uh, e-billing um, does make a lot of sense. Um, and there are various startups that are really promoting that. The government themselves have said we are going to to e-bill people to you know small and, and medium businesses, which makes sense. But is it is it a big deal? Is it does it need 276 million dollars? I don't know. I would have thought that most businesses had moved to at least some form of electronic billing. Maybe that's not true for sort of older businesses and maybe this is what they're looking at. But you're absolutely right. A quarter billion dollars to do this seems a lot. But the real line item that caught my eye was the $200 million charge to overhaul MyGov. Now, you're both experts in funding companies. How many companies would I be able to buy and take to market for $200 million <laughs> who would be able to solve this problem? Ten? I mean, you know, I think all of us have been users of the MyGov website. Seems pretty good to me so far. Um, they obviously know something that we don't. I'm shaking my head a bit. It's a, it seems pretty good with the little I use it. And um, I'm thinking I've invested – I've made 33 investments in 24 startups with $10 million. How many startups could I get behind with $200 million? Mm. Quite a lot. Mm. And I haven't counted up the jobs they've created, but it's a lot. <laughs> there's, at the very least, there's a failure in communication about what this money is being spent on to the people who would actually be able to give a nod to, okay, that's probably the right thing to do, or maybe here's different ways to do it. So that's the government's communication strategy, if nothing else. We then, you know, as you noted, Andrea, this, this call for a startup year, all right, <laughs> Which was made by the opposition and then promptly trashed by the Minister for Innovation and Industry after it was made by them. What do we think about this idea of being able to sort of take a year, I guess, out of a uni education and, and dedicate it to being in a startup? I mean, we're, we're recording this in 
UTS, and UTS has definitely made that a core part of what they want their students to do. Is this something that the government is now or that the opposition wants to get in front of? I don't know. It's, it smacks to me of, um, you know, the opposition wanting to be in the, in the game, bringing up the topic and not to, not to appear as if they've been kind of left in the dust. Um, I think their purported goals, you know, of increasing, you know, um, the number and scale of high-growth companies, that's, that's a really laudable goal, but I, th I think they've got an ill-thought-out plan for it. I'm not sure why they think um, t just simply target something as simplistic as tar targeting new graduates or university students is, is the most cost-effective way of doing that and achieving their goal. Uh, I don't know, it just seems to me that there's been as little thought and consultation with people that do know on their part as well as the government's part. I actually think we do need a Labor government to, to take the digital economy seriously. I think if we look back at how superannuation came about, it was only a Labor government that could really do that and do that deal with the unions. Um, historically, it's an amazing thing that the country's done. Actually, I actually think looking at the startup here, it's not, not a terrible idea. I think to take people and give them the means to be able to try something new to be able to finance themselves through HEX, which is what they're proposing. Uh, it's, you know, it's not the worst idea I've heard. You know, sure, they, they'll need to flesh that out and their whole, the larger strategy, they'll be able to, to think about that. But actually, you have a soft spot for Ed Husick. You know, when, uh, whenever he's, he, you know, he's had that shadow ministry taken away from him and come back, um, he actually is engaged with, with the community very well, I think. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to see him. And, you know, he's colleagues in government, but that's another story. I have, I have to jump in. It's not that I think there's anything wrong with their problem, uh, their proposed solution, you know, what they want to spend on. I think it's actually, agree with you that there's some merit in it. I just don't know that is, if their purport, is it the most cost-effective goal and the quickest and most direct route to achieving what they're saying their goal is. I think that's my issue. All right, and then the, the last thing to note is that there has been a change in the minister. This used to be Karen Andrews' ministry. And the, the, the Karen Andrews is now, I think, what, running defense, if I'm correct about that. And so it's been, been, been given to a, a different minister. Does the startup community, do you think, feel a little less loved when they feel like they're, in some sense, the redheaded stepchild of the ministries? I don't know. I think, I think the startup sector feels they've been kicked to poison ball. <laughs> yeah, I think like a lot's been said about the appointment. Uh, I just wish it hadn't happened. Like most people, you know, an industry science and innovation minister that's a complete lame duck, you know, what purpose does that serve? Um, and what signal does it send? Yeah, uh, it's really interesting. If you dig a little bit in this, he's been totally silent since appointment. No interviews or press conferences. I, I did a little dig on this. Since the reshuffle, which is 75 days ago, Peter Dutton, Defence, 29 press conferences or interviews. Uh, Karen Andrews, 13. Uh, the Employment Minister, Stuart Robert, has done 16. And even Michaela Cash has done four. So the, the NDIS Minister, which is uh, Linda Reynolds, she was demoted the same time as, as Mr Porter. She's done five of these in the past 10 days. So... The guy that's meant to be, or the minister that's meant to be representing uh, this sector 
is gone completely silent. So, yeah, is we we all sure it's a terrible appointment oh, for the sector, but it's even worse by being completely you know absent, probably running his case, not doing his job. Yeah, you're listening to this week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Twista is proudly sponsored by User Testing. Are you launching a new product, developing a new prototype, rolling out a new campaign? User Testing lets you see, hear, and talk to your customers to understand how they experience your brand, your product, and your services. Chubby's, a men's casual apparel brand, gained valuable insights by asking some of their customers to explain why they love their Chubby's shorts, when they wore them last, even asking for new product suggestions to guide their product roadmap. So put yourself in your customer's shoes with user testing. Request your free trial at usertesting.com slash Twista and get the fast human insights you need to make more informed business decisions at scale. Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia's new special for Series 9. We're here with Julix Ventures' Andrea Gardner and Carthona Capital's Dean Durrell. All right, a topic closer to home for both of you. We heard the news about three weeks ago of a huge $250 million funding round for a new fund from Main Sequence Ventures. That's a nice, big round. Do we need to see that kind of funding and maybe more for deep tech, Andrea? Oh, absolutely, I think. Deep tech, um, you know, as as early as they invest and they sometimes actually sort of find the tech and um, put the, you know, start the company themselves. I think we actually need a lot more of that. And um, we've got great tech in Australia and we need to commercialise it here. Sorry to repeat that one, but I think it's really important. Um, and I think importantly, they do invest quite early. And at the, you know, we've seen um, a large increase in the size of the capital pool under management by venture capital managers in Australia. But at the same time, we've conversely we've seen a reduction in the amount of professional investment at the seed stage, and that gap is growing. And I think the sad thing and the worrying thing about that is it creates a real vulnerability because. We need a pipeline and those very early stage companies um, are struggling increasingly to to get funding even though there's more capital under management. And the reason for that is bigger funds, you know, with GPs able to go and say four to six boards each, they have to write a bigger cheque. If you've gone from 60 million under management to 600 million under management, you're going to be writing cheques in the millions, not in the hundreds of thousands. So... I mean, Dean, you've also been at this for a while. We both remember when, in fact, it was easier to get seed because people weren't writing as big checks, right? That was the thing. So is this now a function of the fact that we've in some sense grown too big for our bridges? No, I don't think so. I think the uh, amount of capital is still too low for the the what the local community and, and entrepreneurs need. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of main sequence, uh, there's some highly talented people there. The partners are you know are some brilliant people there. I think um, in building a, a deep tech business, timing is really tough 
You know, there's a lot of new science involved. So they need to be funded through several rounds. And I think having a, a series of decent-sized funds like they've got now, um, it really helps them to get behind the companies that they want to get behind. Um, and I think it's just great for the sector. So, I mean, it, it is funny because it used to be, and I think I remember when was it One Ventures raised a quarter billion dollar round. It was like, oh, my God, right? It was a really big deal. And that was only, what, four or five years ago. And now it's like, oh, a quarter billion dollar round. That's nice. What's happened to us? Have we become used to the fact that there's a lot of capital and that it's easier to raise capital for a fund now? Or was it easier? Um, Well, Dean's been around longer than me, so I'm sure you'll add to this. But I think, you know, we had um, the likes of Host Plus that were one of the – I think they were the first, were they not, um, to institutional investor to write a big cheque into a venture capital fund. being a super fund. fund. Yeah, it's a super fund. And then you had, you know, Black Trees – sorry, Blackbird's um, strip sale of their first fund, which was phenomenally successful. And since then, I think they've seen that lots of money can be made uh, investing in venture funds and it's – seems to be pouring in, but it's not pouring into the – it's pouring into established managers at their second fund and beyond. And I think, you know, raising a first fund is still hard. We're doing that at the moment. Uh, we're almost there, uh, which is very exciting. Um, but it, it's still hard because even though we've spoken to institutional investors um, and they've said, oh, we really want to invest, but we want to, we'll have to invest in the next fund because our – you know, asset management consultants will never say yes to a first fund. Yeah, I mean, is this what you experienced at Carthena, that it, would, it was harder to raise the first fund? Um, actually, no. I think um, I actually think the environment for raising first funds is as difficult as it's been, you know, in this second iteration of, of venture in, in the country. I think going back to your earlier point about is 250, are we becoming uh, blasé about it? I think we came from such a terrible place. If, mm. you, if you look, Couldn't agree more. you know, back to 2011, 2012, essentially there wasn't a venture capital or technology-focused venture capital uh, business at all. Mm. So we just got a few funds up. And we're still uh, under-indexed in terms of amount of VC uh, funding as a percentage of GDP. We're down with Poland and Eastern European countries. But so, no, I think, I think Andrea is absolutely right. And I feel for for colleagues in the industry that are trying to raise their first fund. I think it's much harder now. I think that um, asset consultants are, you know, quite rightly um, the gatekeepers to those big institutional funds, but it's become much more difficult. It's it's fine for established funds um, to to re- get re-ups from, from superannuation funds, but we need a, a variety and diversity of funds and, you know, I think it would be much better if we had more funds. As a startup person, it also makes me feel good that, in fact, a venture capitalist first fund is almost like the fool's friends and family around. Like that you really do <laughs> have to go – but you have to go around and beg a little bit, right? That it isn't until you're actually past that first hurdle that the doors actually open up and people have to basically believe in you to some degree. And it's, yeah, I think it's heartening to see that that conundrum is faced on both sides of the table. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember being very anxious about my f- pitching the fund the first time. Uh, yeah. So one of the pieces of legislation that was in the budget that I actually thought was interesting was the patent box legislation. So let's talk about that for a minute because this is around um, basically a lower tax rate for 
I think specifically biotech and medical tech companies and the patents and the intellectual property around that. What do we think about that? Is that good and is there enough of that? Well, I personally think it's well overdue. You know, I think there's over 20 other countries that have already have a similar sort of um, patent box. You know, the, it, what it is is it's um, a lower tax rate for revenue that's been generated out of um, newly, newly patented technology. And, you know, 20 other companies gives them a leg up on us. <laughs> and it's, you know, any sort of economic support, I think, in the early commercialisation stages of, of IP is really helpful. I think we probably need to extend it beyond medtech and, uh, what is it, medtech and biotech. It'd be good to extend it beyond that. I think that's right. Actually, it's a really good point. You know, when I first saw that, I was thinking, so what's so special about those sectors? Well, the pandemic, I think, is what's special about the sectors in terms of it being front of mind. You're not saying the government's being short term, are you? <laughs> No, look, I, you know, <laughs> perish the thought. <laughs> there's, there's the, the the software industry in general is completely neglected. You know, the R and D tax credits are still is still not clear. Mm-hmm. Can you get it for software? Okay, you can, but via this convoluted route, you need to be audited the whole lot. They, you know, they picked up Airtasker as a as a test case, but now they're saying, okay, you're going to get seventeen percent. Uh, tax rate through the patent box instead of 30. But what about the other sectors? Why not? If we were going to pick some winners, which sectors would we immediately identify as the ones that could be the give you the best bang for the buck beyond uh, med tech and biotech? I think we're really strong in egg tech and ag tech in Australia. Yeah, I think, let's face it, if, you're, uh, if you can afford to pay the expensive tax accountants and lawyers then your jurisdiction for your IP doesn't remain in Australia. Mm. One of our greatest companies relocated the headquarters to London just to, to do that, right? Mm. Um, people, people can do that very it take, easily. It can take seven years to get a patient in Australia. You know, they really need to ease that up. And I think there needs to be some sort of focus on a, 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 a universal quick and easy program to get IP out of universities to allow, you know, the academics to commercialise it, the academics that have actually developed it to commercialise it or someone else to commercialise it. But at the moment, it's it's an absolute hodgepodge. Some universities like ANU actually make it fairly easy and then other universities make it incredibly Difficult. I have been close to that process before, and it can be eye-watering when the university thinks that there's actual real money on the table and wants a piece of it, and they yeah. can fetter a process so much so that the academics involved simply give up and move yeah. on because it was just too hard to actually monetize their intellectual property. Oh, no, and that's a tragedy for Australia. So this, given that the universities are looking for as much money as they can right now, and given that the universities are also federally funded... Is this an area where, in fact, the federal government could make a reasonable contribution in terms of producing a policy that all of the federally funded universities would be able to subscribe to around what the relationship is around intellectual property production there? I I don't know whether the right body is the federal government. I think it could be extremely helpful um, to have that, extremely helpful, because at the moment I think it is a really big hurdle to commercialising tech that's generated by Uh, universities but I think they need to I think the problem you know we talked earlier about what I think is you know could have been a more comprehensive supposedly 
digital strategy. And it's I think there's a lack of consultation and taking investing the time and effort into cons, consulting the people that do know. And I think if you're going to have – if the federal government was going to, um, uh, you know – Shepherd, you know, help develop a, a, a policy like that. It wouldn't just be academics that have that have to consult. They'd have to consult people that know how to commercialise it and all the legal, the legal and commercial implications of it, and make sure that they were consulting widely in that way rather than just academics. And presumably, actually take a look at the at the flow that has to come from a researcher or a lab coming up with an idea all the way to a public company, right? You have to take a look at every step of that and understand that so that you can formulate policy to be able to support that. And do we see any of that in place? I don't think we do. I I think it's very ad hoc. Like you say, um, some unis are really well set up well for that. Uh, Others are not. Others want to hold on to more of the the economics if a business comes out. I'm, I'm actually chairman of a business that spun out of uh, University of Sydney. That was actually done very, very well. Um, a member of the technology transfer uh, committee sits on the board alongside me. That's actually what was handled very, very well. The academic is, is exceptional. I'm really happy with that business, but I think that's a rarity. And let's face it, as, as funders of new businesses, we're often... Um, Given businesses are very well packaged for for us, entrepreneurs know their way around how to um, come to VCs and get funded. It's it's a competitive market if technology and businesses coming out of universities is not well packaged. They just won't get funded. So they were functioning at a disadvantage because they're just simply not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the first questions you ask you know if the ip is key then you need to know who owns it and if the university owns it they don't have complete control over it it's not really investable no and uh, you know having worked with incubate seeing an entire incubate cycle which is 12 to 16 weeks sort of go by and have the researchers still unclear at the end of that it's yeah you're listening to this week in startups australia we'll be right back and we'll be asking our two guests about the theme of series nine success Twista is proudly sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. With Squarespace, you can blog, publish content, promote your business, announce upcoming events and special projects, sell products and services of all kinds, and much more. No matter what you need to do online, Squarespace has the answer. And don't take their word for it. Here's what the folks at Remote Demo Day have to say. Now, back in 2020, they decided to create Remote Demo Day for founders to pitch to thousands of angel investors live. They purchased the domain RemoteDemoDay.com and had the site up and running in minutes because Squarespace is so easy to use. Remote Demo Day has been a success so far, and Squarespace has played a huge part in that. From websites to online stores, from marketing tools to analytics, Squarespace has what you need to succeed online. Go to squarespace.com slash Twista for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the code Twista to save 10% off the first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash Twista.
We're back with Carthona Capital partner Dean Durrell and Gilix Ventures CEO Andrea Gardner. Now, in our last two episodes, we heard first from Matt Allen of Tractor Ventures. He's talking about how he's filling in the capital raising gap with loans rather than equity sales, which is more and more possible, particularly for the SaaS sort of startups. Then in our last episode, we heard from George Pepew of Vow, who talked about a pivot toward biotech and deep tech as the future of venture capital because it promises returns that are getting ever harder to achieve with your average software startup. Oh, that was a great face, Andrea. So, Because I'm going to ask you, is that what you're seeing? And I guess the answer is it's not what you're seeing. Oh, look, I suppose I think that, you know – it goes back to almost investment fundamentals. I mean, you get a great team with a, a solution that there's a massive global market for. Um, and I, I don't know, I think there's lots of opportunities in lots of different verticals. And to suggest that, I mean, I do think Australia, for example, um, we're particularly strong on certain verticals. Um, but I just don't think that it's to the exclusion of others. Dean? Well, to paraphrase someone else, it feels like software has only just started eating the world. You know, I <laughs> yeah. think that... So it's on the entree. It hasn't moved on to yeah. the mains yet. I mean, yeah. there's many things that we can't imagine that software, uh, machines, AI are going to do. Um, and Absolutely. I think if you go back hundreds of years, it always felt like, oh, every discovery been made. And it's just that's just a natural feeling. So... Sure, there's going to be unbelievably interesting things to do in, in deep tech, biotech, but software still there's huge things to be done. Oh, it's a long way to go. And I, and I don't mean – because perhaps I misstated the premise, which wasn't that there won't be interesting things to do, but that it's getting cheaper and cheaper to start and scale the software business now because there's so much infrastructure in place for that. So the opportunity for you as investors to make – a return is also decreasing because the capital needs are changing. Whereas in deep tech and biotech, those capital needs are, you know, they're just they're going up and up and up, and the risk profile is going up. So does that mean that those businesses are becoming, in some sense, do you think that they will become more attractive than your standard software businesses? I don't know. I think the hardware it still requires a lot of money, um, and software businesses they still require money. They still require great people to run them and operate them. They, you know, they need to market themselves. They, you know, need to, you know, navigate regulatory, uh, regulatory landscapes. They still need money to grow. So, you know, I think there's a lot to go in investing in software businesses. All right. I will let that go because it's, that's, it's, 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 a pet, it's a pet idea of mine, but I'm, I'm <laughs> hearing from the experts that perhaps I need to rein myself in. All right. Let's return now, finally, to the theme of Series 9. I want to ask both of you because you have seen a lot of startups. You have funded a lot of startups. You have advised a lot of startups. What have each of you learned in your long experience about what makes for a successful startup team? It's a great question. Um, and this is actually at the crux of what we do as financiers of new businesses. And, and really it comes down to that's why we have a place in the system. You know, if we don't allocate resources correctly and we don't think about this properly, we don't deserve our place in the system and eventually, you know, we'll have to get out of the way. So internally at Carthona, we think about this really, really deeply um, and we're trying to always distill the DNA 
recognizing that every business is different, but there's a certain DNA to those businesses. So when we think about it, the first thing we really think about is a high performance um, environment and uh, performers of those individuals. And imagination is also incredibly important. We have to imagine as an entrepreneur a different state of the world. So if you have no imagination, if you can only see the, the way things are, you're, you, know, you won't get very far. Um, persuasiveness is incredibly important. You need to persuade, A, yourself to probably leave a, a decent job to go and start something up. You need to persuade investors, customers, employees is incredibly important. Um, but being self-aware is also really, really important. Absolutely. Because some, and, and rare. Yeah, but people can persuade a lot of other people, including themselves. That persuasiveness also has this double-edged thing. Self-aware, you know, one of the great entrepreneurs that I've worked with, Stephen Dash at, at Credible, always says this, I can persuade pretty much anybody, including myself, to do this, but is it the right thing? That self-awareness gets you a hell of a long way. Uh, leadership is incredibly also important. If you want to found a company, you're going to need to lead. Uh, and actually, a, uh, a common uh, portfolio founder of ours, of Andrea and I, um, Tom and Joseph, was saying to me the other day, oh, you know, I haven't, I haven't led a company before. And I said, I think that's a real attribute. If you come out of the leadership program of one of these huge companies, actually, I think that's a real detriment. I think that's a real problem. So... Coming at leadership from a, from a completely blank slate, as long as you're a smart person, I think is really, really good. Uh, learning your lessons, also incredibly important. You're going to make mistakes. And anyone who thinks it's going to be just this wonderful, up and to the right, no problems, you're just going to build a billion-dollar business without having some ups and downs, you're going to need to learn from those lessons. Um, the last couple of really we think about is collaboration, and that means uh, – team, building a team around you, collaborating with your investors, with your, with your customers, incredibly important. And the, but the really, really, really big one is resilience because this journey is a tough one. You know, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs do very well, do very badly. Even the people that do very well, and it comes quickly. They've had to deal with some tough things. And so that resilience, knowing that you've got that resilience, and it's a muscle, you know, for entrepreneurs that are out there say, oh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm that resilient. Well, everybody feels like that at some stage, and you just need to keep going. So really, they're the major things that we think about. Well, I absolutely couldn't agree more. I think with resilience, though, I think it's much more than a muscle. I think it's actually comes down. You don't have to be that tough. I think you need... The, I think you need good support networks around you and people that can say they're there or whatever. And the important thing is you can fall down, but as long as you dust off your knees and get up and have a go again and keep going. That's the important thing because pe people talk about how important that resilience is, and it is, but it's not a just tough it out. It's a acknowledge that sometimes it really is tough and sometimes it's just going to floor you and... But you just need that, that. So it's for me, in addition to some of the things you're talking about, um, I look for um, people with a, like a history of long-term relationships because lo people with long-term relationships suggest that they're, quite, that they're reasonably capable and competent at interpersonal relationships that hopefully will augur well for 
developing relationships with strategic partners, investors, customers, all that sort of stuff. I think that's really important. Really, really, really important for me is um, an ability to learn. So not just you know, not just substantial intellectual firepower, but a lack of the emotional impediments to learning. Like someone that's got so much ego, they don't actually recognise that they're crap at the things they're crap at because we're all crap at things. And some of those things are going to be important for building a business. Then you don't know that that's the first gap that you've got to fill, you know, with someone who's really, really good at and it. And you can't be told because you have this ego filling Yeah, and if you can't listen and learn, especially as early as we invest, because there's inevitably going to be lots of iterations, direction changes, some of big magnitude, some of small magnitude, but they're going to be a result of learning and listening to your customers and looking at the market and learning and, you know, understand, reacting to how things are, how your business is going. And if you're not able to learn, then you're not going to be able to react properly. Um, and the other thing that's really key for us is um, any even, like, integrity, you know. And Absolutely. Are they going to be transparent? You know, because that way we can develop the sort of relationship where, you know, we're on the same side and when the shit hits the fan, they're hopefully will be the first person they call because they know that we're going to do our level best to help. They're not going to be trying to fudge things because if they fudge things, then it's going to be, it's often going to be too late by the time we know. So those things are important. So they're the founders and the people and that's really important. But, you know, for us, we are also looking for that, you know, huge global market, um, really innovative technology that's providing a really strong competitive advantage in a huge global market. And also we look for, um, we have a strict no harm policy, so we don't invest in things like pornography or gambling or anything like, or anything that's going to do obvious harm to the environment. And we have a bias for positive impact. Wow. And, and I like what you said about integrity because you gave integrity a depth. We normally think of integrity as being true to your word, right? But it's mm. actually also about being, about being transparent about where that word is coming from. Yeah. And I think, I think integrity leads to trust and trust is critical for long-term relationships and long-term relationships are pretty key to building a profitable business as well as enjoying working with them. And I don't want to invest in anyone that I really don't think I'm going to enjoy working with. <laughs> and on that note, Thank you very much, Andrea. Thank you very much, Dean, for joining us on this special news special on This Week in Startups Australia. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. Twister is proudly sponsored by Odoo. One of the toughest parts of building a company is choosing which tools and service providers to use. There are so many functions in a startup and each space has endless vendors. Sales tools, email marketing, accounting, HR and payroll, project management, customer support, point of sale, e-commerce. It goes on and on. And eventually, you end up with a Frankenstack of tools that cost a lot and don't integrate properly. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that let you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. For instance, their accounting products are perfect for anyone who is ready to upgrade from Excel or QuickBooks but doesn't want to break the bank with some of the more expensive options out there. It's simple and modular, so you can use what you need and all of their apps integrate perfectly with each other. Your first app is free forever. 
And right now, Odoo is offering a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. That's not a joke. Take $1,000 off. Go to odoo.com slash twista to check it out. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twista. Listening to Dean and Andrea talk about success, you can tell that they've learned a lot, not just from the companies that they've been involved with, but by the work that they've actually done as well. And Dean really takes a look at the interplay between persuasion and self-awareness. And it really is a fine line because a good entrepreneur believes in what they're doing so much they can convince other people and they can actually convince themselves. But the self-awareness is the thing that allows them to rein that in. So they have the ability to understand that their success depends on how much they can believe, but also how they can temper that belief. And then you take a look at Andrea, and Andrea really flips that around and says, you know, Resilience is important, but resilience isn't about an individual. Resilience is about a network. Resilience is about how much you can build relationships with other people, that your success is really drawn from your ability to build long-term relationships with everything that implies. And so you can take a look at these elements and with that idea of integrity and transparency coming into this, that even matches that idea of self-awareness, that you can see there are a whole set of human qualities that we want to have and that we can grow. You know, you can't just sit there and say, oh, I don't have these qualities, so therefore I can't do this. You can grow the, every one of those qualities inside of yourself. And when you do that, you start to have the set of qualities that we associate with success. Big thanks to Twister sponsors, User Testing, Squarespace, and Odoo. Thanks to our production partners at UTS Startups for their assistance. And in particular, let me thank Michael Jones for making us very welcome at the 2SER studios for recording this show. Thanks to Andrea Gardner and Dean Durrell for making the time to come on to our show. Come visit our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links, and all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week with the second of our conversations with successful startup entrepreneurs. This time, it'll be Sylvia Pfeiffer, CEO of CoView, to learn from her about how she turned last year's extraordinary growth, which we covered in Series 8, into success. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. <laughs>